Well, I want to welcome you this morning to Palmetto Baptist Church. What a privilege to worship together, and what a joy to have you here with us. Ashlyn, welcome to your home church. We love you. We're excited that you're here, and uh, just really thank the Lord for you. And we have another one of our missionary gospel partners with us this morning, and I'm very excited for them to be here. They're also here all the way from Zambia. And so Ben and Amy Straub, Ben, would you just hold your hand up and wave, and his lovely wife Amy is sitting right next to him, and uh, their three sons and their lovely daughter are with them, and uh, they will be meeting with our elders uh, tonight to give a missionary update on what the Lord is doing in their life. We're so glad, uh, Ben and Amy, that you're here with us this morning. Uh, They have been through quite a year. Uh, they suffered at the loss of their home in a fire. <clears throat> and the Lord spared them, and uh, uh, actually the Lord intervened in, in some very incredible ways. And then, of course, Amy has had a very difficult year health-wise. And those of you that have been following along that journey on Facebook, I know some of you have, I know Beth, and, Beth has, and I have, and we're thankful for God's intervention in uh, the life of the Straubs. So we're so glad you all are here. Thank you for coming all the way from Zambia. They're uh, here in the States uh, for much uh, needed refreshment and uh, furlough. So if you see the Straubs after church today, uh, greet them. Say thank you for being our gospel partners uh, all the way across the ocean. Well, today uh, we are beginning a new series. I always love new series. It's a new beginning. It's a new opportunity Uh, for us to kind of regather and recalibrate around the Word of God. And we are beginning a series, a summer series here on worship. And so I was uh, really delighted uh, when Pastor Brian opened our call to worship with Psalm 100. And then just to hear the the music this morning, the choir. Thank you guys for doing that. That was awesome. And uh, and then the singing. We, We sang a modern song. And then when we sang All Creatures of Our God and King, we sang a song that was written in the 1200s. And that is a very ancient song. How many of you uh, enjoy the text of that hymn? Would you nod your head? You know that was written by a Roman Catholic, don't you? I mean, it really was. It was written, the text of that hymn was written by Francis of Assisi, and it was put, well, I really do hope that as we sang together this morning, your heart was blessed, and um, he really is worthy of our praise, isn't he? I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to the 95th Psalm, and I want to begin our series on worship. <clears throat> I've called the series, Worship Matters, and you can take that as a noun, or you can take that as a verb. You can say, well, these are matters related to worship that we're going to talk about for the next number of weeks, and we are. We're going to find out what the Bible has to say about worship. We're going to take a a theological look at the contours that the Bible has laid out for us from beginning to end on worship. And I don't mean that we're going to go through the whole Bible on worship. I'm just making the observation that worship begins in Genesis. And by the time you get to the end of our Bible in Revelation 22, uh, you find an incredible place that is filled with glad worship to the Lord. And so really the storyline of Scripture is worship. And so worship 
uh, matters, and uh, we're going to talk about those matters, but worship also matters. It matters intensely to God, and it matters immensely to all of creation, and it should matter to God's redeemed people. And so when you see that title, it's not original to me, but I saw it somewhere and I thought, man, I'm going to borrow that title and uh, use it for our series uh, this summer. I want to begin by observing that nothing is more important to God than the glad worship of His people. Nothing. Nothing matters more to God than the worship that He enables and He guides and He energizes and He directs in our lives. Worship is uh, important to God. Nor is worship confined to what happens in our own body, our own gathered worship here this morning. Worship on earth is actually patterned by what is happening in heaven. You know, as you think about what we do each week on Sunday morning when we come together and gather in corporate worship and we listen to the Word and we uh, pray the Word together and then we sing our glad and thankful praise to God and we give testimony of who God is and what God has done for us, this pattern on earth is actually reflective of what's going on in heaven. In other words, when Jesus talked about uh, God's name being exalted, God's kingdom being extolled, and God's will being done, He talks about the fact that all of that is being done in heaven, and He urges us to pray that what is being done in heaven would also be done on earth. And that's part of what we see here in Scriptures. There are uh, five incredible visions that God gave to the Apostle John at the very end of his life on an island in prison there under the Roman Empire. This aged apostle, the last eyewitness of the Lord, last ear witness to what he had taught and said, this great apostle who wrote five books of our Bible, was given a vision. And five different times he is carried into the presence of the angelic beings and he's brought into this realm where God is seated on his throne. And there are these amazing living creatures that are around the throne and uh, seated on 24 thrones around that great throne are 24 elders that represent the redeemed people of God from all ages. That's you and that's me if we know the Lord. And standing before that assembly of thrones is an immeasurable throng of people, creatures, angelic image bearers, creatures of every kind. And they are all engaging in some of the most dynamic worship you could ever imagine. The content of that worship is described. What they are actually saying is found in Revelation 4. It's found in Revelation 5. (coughs) It shows up again in Revelation 11 when a group of redeemed people that God has delivered from the hand of the beast during the tribulation sing the same song that Moses and the people of God sang way back in Exodus 15. They sang again the song of Moses. And they sing that in Revelation 11 to the Lord. In Revelation 15, they sing again 
And then there are four great hallelujahs that this great assembly renders to God in Revelation 19. And I say all of that to say to you that what we do on Sunday morning is patterned or should be after what is going on in heaven constantly. And so I want us to take a look over the next couple of weeks at worship. Now, several years ago, our founding pastor preached a very short series on worship focused around two primary passages of Scripture. He focused attention on the 150th Psalm, and then he spent time in John chapter 4. And we're going to look at those passages later on in the series. Uh, But I want to commend that series to you. I think you can still find it on Sermon Audio if you go looking for it. Everything that um, I say in this series is going to build on the foundation that our founding pastor gave to us. It was a very helpful series to me. I listened to those messages numbers of times, and I certainly want to commend them to you. But for about a year now, as I have been uh, thinking about my own journey, I think about our church, I think about you, pray for you, but I also think about my own journey. And as I've thought about my own journey, uh, I felt the need personally to come to the Scriptures and to drink from the water that God has placed there, the refreshing water on the topic of worship. We all go through seasons of life where our soul feels parched. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. The way that you're on just seems long. You know it's the right path. You know that you're walking there. You know that God puts your feet on that path. And you know that you're there in obedience to the Lord. But the path is long and it's hard. And the terrain feels a lot like desert. You read those passages that the Israelites were involved in in the books of Exodus and the books of Numbers, and all of a sudden you can relate to that in very real ways. It just seems like the way is long, the, the, the road is dark and hard, and the green pastures and the still waters that you read about in Psalm 23, you keep looking for those, and they don't seem to be found anywhere. And I don't know about you, but that's sort of been uh, where my soul has been. And so, where do you go for nourishment that will strengthen your soul and satisfy your heart when you're on a long trek like that through the wilderness? Now, I don't think it's right, and I'll say this to you from time to time. You know, I don't get to use my personal journey to set the personal journey for the church. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm just explaining to you where this series began. It began out of a, a, a dryness in my own soul that I began asking God to help me with. And over the last year, I found an oasis in that wilderness. And it was here at Palmetto Baptist on Sunday mornings. I would sit right there, and there would be a song we would sing. And it would be all I could do to just contain the emotion that would come up in my soul. Sometimes it was Pastor Brian, and he would stand in front of us, and he would call us to worship, and the text that he used was, it was just the word I needed from the Lord that day. Sometimes it was the benediction that Pastor Ben gave at the end of our sermon, and at the end of our worship. The last thing we do is we we call the Word of God to witness what we have done, and I needed that on more than one occasion. 
Sometimes, believe it or not, it was the children's sermon. And Pastor Garrett would call our children up here, and it was exactly what I needed at that moment in my life. And I began to realize something as I came together. Sometimes it was a conversation with one of you. I'm struggling in my own life. Lord, why are you doing this? Or why is this prayer not being answered? And I'd have a conversation with one of you in the back, and you would say, Pastor, I just need to tell you something that God did this week. And you would share something that God did or how God answered a prayer. And all of that collectively over the course of about 12 months began to help me understand something, that corporate worship isn't just designed to please God. It is designed for our good. There is power in worship. There is transformative, life-giving power when we come together to worship. I know sometimes you can come in to a church like this. I mean, look at us. We, we worship in a gym. This is not actually conducive to worship. I mean, when we sing, it's like the, the, the sound just disappears somewhere in the ethos. And uh, we don't have all of the beauty of, uh, of a, a beautiful building that is acoustically designed. And so you can sit here and get frustrated at certain things. All I can tell you is this, that for the last year, as I've come into this place, I've needed the drink of refreshing water that I got. You know, Israel drank water from the rock, but not all of them were satisfied. And so I want us to look at worship, not so much from the perspective of what proper worship should look like, although we're certainly going to talk about that. I want to look at the power of worship to change your life. I want you as a church to experience in small measure what I've experienced in small measure as we come to the Word and as we come and we gather together in corporate worship every week. And so I have several goals for the series, and I just want to lay them out for you, and there are five of them, all right? So I want you to think about these goals, and I want you to pray for them as we go through our series. I want us to see the beauty and the power of corporate worship through joyful praise and glad worship as fuel. It is fuel for a life of obedient service to God. Joyful worship fuels our service to God. And I want us to see that. I want us to understand that. So that's one of my goals. I want us to understand the glorious design of worship through the storyline of Scripture. Thankful worship is our response to a big story. And we've been made part of that story. So I want us to see worship every week as the next chapter or maybe even the next paragraph in the story that God is writing, the grand story of Scripture. And as we have our part in that story, worship is our response to that. And then thirdly, I want us to understand that worship, whether it's private or corporate, is what we are designed to do. You are designed to be a worshiper. You, it's not whether you're going to worship, it's what you're going to worship. And so as we think about the design, uh, how God made us, we were designed to worship. And corporate worship is the chief means by which we display the beauty of God to the nations around us. As we come together every Lord's Day 
and we gather in joyful worship and we do what we were designed to do, it is how we magnify God before the nations. And then fourthly, I want us to see worship as transformative. I want us to experience uh, what the Scripture presents over and over again, that the worship of God, when we worship all of who God is, with all of who we are, and with all of what we have, there is a transformative power that grows in us our desire, our ability, and our commitment to serve the Lord with gladness. And that's the final thing. I want us to see at the end of our series that worship is worthy of our spiritual focus. That the battle to worship is worth fighting. The spiritual focus of worship demands our intentional engagement. And so, uh, as we go through our series, I hope that you will pray for these five things. And I'm certainly going to pray for them from time to time in the series. I'm going to bring these back up, and I might even bring one out and show you how the message of that morning is tied to one of those five objectives. And so, with all of that in mind, I want us to turn to Psalm 95, uh, which is one of the greatest and most joyful expressions of worship, and one of the kindest invitations to come before the Lord in worship in one of the most dark and difficult times in the national life of God's people. And so I want us to look at Psalm 95 together this morning. And I want us to begin looking at the call to corporate worship. And we're going to spend our time talking about gathered worship, and I'll explain that here in just a minute. But look at verses 1 and 2, where the psalmist says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Now, Psalm 95 is one of a series of psalms that David wrote for the corporate worship of Israel to celebrate the fact that Yahweh, Jehovah, you see that word Lord in the text there in verse 1? It's all capital. That's the covenant name of God. We would use the word Jehovah or Yahweh, to speak about this name. That Yahweh is their king. This psalm comes with a number of other psalms, namely Psalm 96, connected right next to it, that David wrote on an occasion for national celebration. So let me, let me just kind of lay this out for you to catch. If you go all the way back to the life of David, <clears throat> there was a time when the entire nation came together. This is after David's great exploits. This is after the great victories that David won against the Philistines. And the entire nation came together. The twelve tribes gathered. And the leaders of the tribe said to David, We all want you to be our king. And they made at Hebron, they made David king over all of Egypt. All of, all of Egypt. All of Israel. Not just over Judah and Benjamin, but over all the twelve tribes. And the text says, there was great joy in Israel. Here's David. He's now king over the entire nation. Everybody's celebrating this. And a year later, David decides to bring the ark of God up from where it has been 
and he erects a tent in Jerusalem, and he decides to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, and the entire nation gathers together, and they have a glorious celebration as this ark is brought in formal procession all the way up to Jerusalem. I mean, think of a nation celebrating something in its national life that causes the entire nation to stop and resound with joy. We just had an example of this in England last month with the coronation of their king. The entire nation stopped. There were great preparations made. There was wonderful pomp and circumstance. There were processions and honors and all kinds of things that went on. And the entire world watched. If you went back into David's time, that is, that is an example of what the entire nation was doing as they brought the ark of God up to Jerusalem. And at the head of the procession was David. He was leading this, and he was actually saying to the entire nation, we need to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We need to sing loud praises to God because He is our great King. Here is the King who has just been celebrated by the entire nation. He is our King. And a year later, this King is calling the entire nation together and He is saying, there is a greater King than David. And we are bringing bringing the emblematic symbol of His presence in our midst right into the very heart of our nation, into the capital of our nation. And so this is the context in which David writes Psalm 95. He is saying, as we bring the Lord's presence, the symbol of the Lord's presence into our midst, let's celebrate the fact that He is our great King. Now I want you to notice uh, three ideas here in verses 1 and 2. First of all, the worship that David calls for is corporate. It's not just private worship. It's not just the personal acclamation of the individual worshipers. He is calling the entire covenant nation together to worship. You know, as I began really looking at the concept of worship as it is presented in the Scriptures in both Testaments, I found something very interesting and frankly surprising to me. And it might surprise you that the vast majority of references to worship, the vast emphasis in the Scripture on worship is corporate. That's not to say that God doesn't want us to worship individually and privately in our own lives and in our own day. But the vast emphasis in Scripture is on the corporate worship of God's people. We have almost reversed that in our day. We have almost placed such an emphasis on the individual, personal, privatized worship of God that happens in our own daily life that we have excluded or minimized or even domesticated the importance of the corporate gathered worship of His people. And so David calls the corporate gathered people of God to worship and they are to come before Him with joyful, enthusiastic, grateful praise. Listen to how he says this. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. They are to sing joyfully. 
literally to shout out loud their praise to the rock of our salvation. These verbs are active. They're not passive verbs. They are filled with energetic joy. One translator that I read said this, or one commentator said this, the English translations are for the most part too calm. Both of these verbs call for loud, enthusiastic, joyful praise to be given to the Lord. Now, I don't think you should come in here with a megaphone, and I don't think you should start jumping up and down and hooting and hollering. That's not what's being described here. This is talking about the corporate gathered people of God standing in the presence of their great King, and their heart is so overflowing with thankfulness and praise for who He is and what He has done that they can't help with all of their enthusiasm and all of their energy to say to the Lord and to sing to the Lord their glad praise and their thankful adoration. And so here's my question to you this morning. Do you do that when you come to worship? This is not about volume. This is not about you just getting up and and just yelling out at the top of your lungs. This is about you intentionally engaging in worship enthusiastically with all of your soul. Do you do that on Sunday morning when you come? When we come together in this place, as difficult sometimes as it is to worship here, with the limited resources that we have, can you imagine how dynamic and how life-changing it is when this group of people come together and we are so energized and we are so focused on who God is and what God is like that we can't help with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might lift our voice to God and say, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. And by the way, isn't this what God told Moses to say to the people, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And so it's corporate and they're to come with joyful, enthusiastic, grateful plays and they are to come as thankful members of His covenant people. That's who gets to render this praise. David is not calling the pagans to do this. He is calling God's people to do this. We already looked at the word Lord in verse 1. The capital letters indicate that this is God's covenant name. God has made a covenant with this nation. He has gathered them. He has made them with His hand. And God's made a covenant with you. And He has made you with His hand. And so as David gives this call to worship, this call to worship is given to everybody who can look at the Lord and say to the Lord, you are the one who has delivered me. You are the rock who delivered me from my sin. You saved me from the enemy. You've delivered me from all of my afflictions. And you are delivering me from all of my troubles. I want to stop there and I want to ask you, do you believe that? We're going to find out something about this psalm here in a minute that may help you understand why I'm asking you that question. Because the second thing I want you to see is the context of Psalm 95. We've been looking a little bit sort of way down in the, in the weeds of Psalm 95, 1 and 2. Let's, let's crawl up to the highest place we can find in our mind and let's look out on the landscape and let's see where 95 is in the 150 psalms that make up 
the Psalter. If you look at the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is structured in an intentional way. There are two Psalms that introduce the whole thing, and there are five Psalms that conclude it. When you get to the end of Psalms, there are five Psalms that are called the Hallel Psalms, the, the, the Hallelujah Psalms. And they are calling everything in God's universe to stand up and render hallelujah to God for something God has done. So what is it that God has done? Well, in Psalm 1, you meet a righteous man, a champion. You're introduced to this man in this way. Blessed is the man. So there is a man that God approves. There is an approved man, and he is approved because he does not listen to the counsel of the ungodly, he does not stand in the way of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight, rather, is in what? The law of the Lord. And in this law does he meditate day and night. Therefore, he will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Whatever this man does prospers. You find out that by the end of the psalm, he is standing in a congregation of righteous people that he has gathered. So Psalm 1 introduces you to somebody. Psalm 2 tells you what his mission is. This individual in Psalm 1 that you just met is somebody that God has chosen to put on his holy mountain. And all of the nations are counseled to bow down and submit to him. But instead of submitting to him, they are raging. They are, are, are so angry at God choosing this man from Psalm 1 to put over all of them and to rule over them. And God looks at this man in Psalm 1 that he puts over all of the earth in Psalm 2, and he says to him, ask me for the ends of the earth, and I will give them to you for an inheritance. And he counsels the nation, now you need to kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and lest he dash you in pieces. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are introducing you to a righteous champion who's going to rule over the earth. And you want to know who he is. And the writer of Psalms says, well, let me tell you the story. And so you are going to get five books in the Psalms that are going to tell you the story. Book 1 starts in Psalm 3, and it goes all the way to the end of Psalm 41. And you are introduced to a man named David. And when you meet him in Psalm 3, he doesn't look like a champion. He's running for his life. But by the time you get to the end of Psalm 41, David has been firmly established as the king over Israel. And so you have the rise of David to the throne. And then in, in Psalm 42, going all the way to the end of Psalm 72, what you find is the establishment of David's house. So David is now the king, but what about his dynasty? Is there going to be a Davidic line? And Psalm 72 ends with a glorious celebration as Solomon is crowned king over all of David's lands. And then you start book three. 
Book 3 starts in Psalm 73 and goes to Psalm 89. And it's the story of what happened to David's descendants. What happened to the kings that came out of David and Solomon's line? And what you find in Book 3 is that they were wicked. And they rebelled against the Lord. And they were faithless to the Lord's covenant. And so you see the rise of David. You see the establishment of David's house. And then you see the demise of David's sons. And that's why Psalm 73 starts, Why do the wicked prosper? I was destroyed by this, the psalmist says, until I went into the house of the Lord. And then you have book four. Book four starts in Psalm 90. It's the oldest psalm in your Bible. It was written by Moses. And it takes you to a time in Israel's history where there was no Davidic throne and there was no Davidic kingdom. Because when you get into book four, God's people have lost everything. They've lost their city, they've lost their temple, they've lost their land, and they've lost their king. And they have been carted off to Babylon, and there they sit for 70 long years. And book four that begins in Psalm 90 goes all the way to Psalm 106, and it is the story of God's people, David's people in exile. And in the midst of all of that, these psalms call them to remember with joyful praise that even though David's little throne might be empty, there is a great throne that is still filled. And the one on that throne is God, and He is their God. And all through this section in the psalms, you are going to find two things. You are going to find reminders that Yahweh reigns, God reigns, And secondly, because he reigns, he is to be greatly praised. And that's what book four is doing. And then book five begins in Psalm 107 and goes all the way through Psalm 145. And by the time you get to book five, all of David's people have been regathered from the north, the south, the east, the west. That's why Psalm 107 starts, let the delivered, let the redeemed, let the rescued of the Lord say so. Why? Because God has brought them back from where they have been scattered. And by the time you get to the end of book 5, the temple has been rebuilt. The songs of ascent show God's people going up to a new temple. There is a new king seated on David's throne. Psalm 110 celebrates that. There is a new rebuilt city to go up to. And shalom, rest, is the theme of book 5. And you ask yourself, how in the world did this happen? God did it through His champion. That's why the last five books or the last five psalms are all about praising this God. Now you say, why did we need to go through that? Because the book of Psalms is all about worshiping God wherever you are in this story. And that's really the third thing that we see, the circumstances of worship in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is calling God's people to come into God's presence, to sing to the Lord, to make a joyful noise with thanksgiving and with songs of praise. And if you just listen to the story I told you, they are in the very middle of the darkest, hardest place in the story. Everything has been lost. I mean, book one is about David 
and how exciting it is to see God rescue him and deliver him and choose him and raise him up. Book two is about the establishment of David's glorious house and David's great son Solomon, whose wisdom goes throughout the earth. Book three is about the wickedness of David's sons who lead God's people into rebellion. And by the time you get to book four, where Psalm 95 is, everything has been lost. The city has been burned. The temple has been torn down. Not one stone remains left on top of another. David's throne is empty. His crown lies shattered at the feet of that throne. And God's people have been taken out of the land and into captivity. You remember when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden? Well, here is God's new people of God, and they've just been exiled from the land just like Adam was. These are deep, dark, sad, difficult days. And if the truth be told, that's where some of us live, isn't it? Man, we come to church and we hear the great story like, like book one. It's all about the rise of David. And, and you know, we have in our own lives great times of joy and, and, and God is building things. Or maybe there is the establishment like we saw in book two of a great king and, and all the nation is celebrating this. And there's, there's all of this activity and all this energy and it's awesome. Or maybe we find ourselves in book three where there is the start of a demise coming in our life. But some of us live in book four. And sometimes we walk into church and we feel like everything has been lost. Everything we worked for. Everything we prayed for. Everything we hoped for. Remember when you started off and you thought, man, I'm going to be faithful to God and He's going to be faithful to me. And I'm going to have this kind of a marriage. And here you are and it's like, what happened? What happened to my marriage? You remember when you first brought your kids home and you were convinced that, you know, you, you knew theologically that there was a sin nature, but you were pretty convinced that it had skipped this beautiful little bundle of joy that came into your house? Remember that? And you'd come to church and it was like, oh, what a sweet baby. And you're like, I know, I know. And, uh, you know, my pastor, you know, God has been so gracious. We have, you know, I know there's no such thing as the immaculate conception, but we came pretty close here. There's no sin nature. You remember the day when you discovered you were wrong about that? And you looked at that kid and you say, you know what? That came from my husband's side of the family. Remember that? Fast forward 25 years, fast forward 30 years, and some of you are living in an ocean of pain because everything you tried with that kid, you brought that kid up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You you trained up that child to the best of your ability and, and you said to God, you said he wouldn't depart. You said she wouldn't depart and, and, and they departed. And you're in book four. And you know when book four hits your life, it's devastating. Because it's the undoing of so many hopes. It's the unraveling of so many promises. It's why people at my stage in life and your stage in life walk away. We just walk away. Maybe we don't walk away in person. Maybe we still come and maybe we still sit. and Maybe we still act like, you know, I'm part of this bit. But in our hearts, we walked away. And we're here because our wife is here or our kids are here or our grandkids are here or this is what we're supposed to do. 
we unraveled somewhere in the inside because it didn't turn out. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And we're right in the middle of book four. Right in the middle of Psalm 95. And so what David does in verses three through seven is he looks at people like that who've lost everything, who are in the darkest, most difficult part of the journey. And, and what made it even worse for them is they knew that they were there because of the mistakes they made. You know, it's something when, when stuff happens to you and you couldn't have controlled it, but there's another thing that goes on in your heart when some of what goes on in your life is there and you know that it's there because you refuse to listen to something God told you. Right? And we're there. I mean, there, there are places like that in my life. I mean, don't, don't assume just because I'm your pastor and I'm up here preaching every week that there are not those places in my life. There are, and there are those places in your life, and we just need to be honest about that. We're never going to get to the joy that God put in Psalm 95 if we don't get honest about what's going on in our life. That's why book four in Psalms is so important to you. In that darkness, and in that brokenness, and even in the judgment that we brought on ourselves, God is still on the throne. God still reigns. Four times in this section, David says to God's people, you need to remember that God reigns. He reigns. He is a great God. He is a great King. He is a strong and mighty King. He is a gracious King. We are summoned to worship because of who God is. Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And if you want to know how great He is, in His hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains. The sea is His. Why? Because He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. I mean, think about making the sea. i got a hot tub in my backyard. I can't even figure out how to make that work. Oh, you got to put this in there to keep the water from... I open it up, there's green stuff growing. It's like a little garden in there. And I don't think it's supposed to be that way. You're like, oh, pastor, you just... I know you got to put chlorine or whatever stuff in there. It's, it's a hassle. Can you imagine trying to control the ocean? God made the sea. I can't even control a little tiny piece of a hot tub. He controls the ocean. The mountains... And that's why we're told, come, let us worship. Come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. I mean, here, here David is saying to Israel, look, there's going to come a time in your life, in the good times. And Ezra is bringing all of this back as he compiles all of this to a nation that is coming back after a period of complete darkness and brokenness. And he is saying to them, the God who made the heavens, the God who made the earth, is the God who made this nation. He called this nation into existence. And by the way, he made you. We're to come because of who he is, but we're also to come because of what he has done, his gracious word, uh, work rather. He called us out of Egypt. He redeemed us. He made us a great nation. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. He promised to be our shepherd. 
to protect, preserve, and provide. And this is exactly why David says, look, in the darkest moment and in the most difficult part of the journey, you need to come and you need to bow down. And the content of this worship is found in verses 6 and 7. Let us sing to the Lord. That's actually verses 1 and 2. Let us come into His presence. So what, what are we to do? What are we to bring? Well, we're to bring joyful praise. We're to bring thankful celebration. And we're to bring attentive obedience to what God has said. Look at verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture. <clears throat> kneel. Bow down. These are terms that reflect joyful recognition that when we come together on Sunday morning, we aren't just coming together to hear Pastor Brian or to hear Zach or Chris as they lead us in worship or to hear Pastor Sam or to hear Pastor Ben. We are coming into the presence of our great God, a great King, and He is our God. He is our Maker. And that brings us to the last thing I want you to see as we close this morning, and that is this. There is a condition for all of this. You say, well, why is worship not transforming me? I mean, Pastor Sam, I'm in book four. I'm in that dark place. I'm in that hard space, and I'm looking, and you're right. I mean, what you described is how I feel right now. There there is and has been an unraveling in my soul. And I come and I sit here and I know I'm supposed to come with joyful enthusiasm. I know that I'm supposed to render glad and grateful thanksgiving. And I know that I'm supposed to come with humble attentiveness to God's Word. But I just can't seem to do it. I mean, Pastor, just everything I can just just to show up. And I go home and... It's everything I can do just to put one foot in front of the other spiritually and get through the week and get through my marriage and, and, and get through what I'm supposed to do as a dad or what I'm supposed to do as a mom or a husband or as a wife. And, and I come to church on Sunday and it's like desert. And you know what happens? A lot of people come and they say, I just need a different church. I just need a different place. If I can just figure out how to change the outside circumstances, then it's going to be better for me. And they go off to another church, and for six months to a year or maybe two, it's better, and then they're right back where they were. Because the issue in Psalm 95 is not what's going on outside of you, it's what's going on inside of you. And the problem is, wherever you go, you've got to take you with you. Did you realize that? When you go somewhere, you got to take you with you. It would be great if you could go somewhere and leave you here. But it doesn't work that way. And so the sooner you and I get to realize that what David is doing in this psalm is he is calling us into this transformative experience. And at the very end of the psalm, he's explaining to us why the transforming experience isn't transforming us. So look at the end of verse 7. Psalm 95, today, see the urgency of this? Today, if you hear His voice, if you hear His Word, do not resist. Do not harden your heart. 
as the people of God did at Meribah as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. This is the day when the nation of God was in the wilderness. You can read about it in the book of Numbers. And everything God did wasn't enough. We're thirsty. God gives them water out of a rock. Yeah, that's just water. We miss what we had back in Egypt. God gives them manna from heaven, this life-giving bread from heaven. And they're like, we loathe it. We're tired of this bread. And by the way, we don't like Moses either. And Aaron's not much better. And Miriam, don't even talk about her. And God says, all right, enough is enough. You are not going to enter into my rest. Can I ask you something? Is the reason you might be in the desert without rest God? Or is it you? Is there a place where you've hardened your heart? Is there a place where you're striving with the Lord? You have to come to worship with a glad heart and a thankful heart, but you also have to come to God with an attentive heart and a submissive heart where you hear His Word and you say to the Lord, Lord, that's right. I need Your Spirit to enliven me to receive this Word. You realize, folks, you can't come on Sunday morning and sit here and hear the Word of God and understand it apart from the Spirit of God opening your eyes and causing you to see what's really there. That's why for some of you it's so hard. I understand why you get distracted in worship. I understand when you're hearing God's Word and and, and it's just not clicking with you and it's so tempting to pull out that smart device and do something else on it. And, And you know how I know that? Because I struggle with that. And the issue is, God, I need you to be opening my eyes and connecting me to whatever it is in this Word that you are trying to use to give me life and to transform me. And that's why, David, at the end of this great psalm, in some of the most dark days, in some of the most difficult days of Israel's life as a nation, said to the people, now don't harden your heart. Don't go astray in your heart. When you come to worship, when I come to worship, we need to come with glad praise. We need to be all in. We need to come with all of who we are, worshiping all of who He is with all of what we have. And part of that is coming to God and saying, God, whatever you have to say in your word to me today, I need your spirit to open my eyes. I want to be receptive to it. And I need your spirit to quicken my conscience so that I'm convicted. And I want your spirit to energize my will so that it submits to whatever you have said. And I'll say this to you. When you do that, it's amazing what happens. Worship becomes transformative because you become, I become, like who we worship. And that's how we become more and more like Christ. Father, thank you for this passage that begins our journey through your word to learn the beauty and the power and the joy of worship. And we desperately want that. We don't want to just keep coming week after week after week and just doing things and saying things and praying things and singing things and preaching things and hearing things and writing little notes down. Lord, we want there to be such a transformative nature to what we do each week that the nations would see it and be astonished 
at the beauty of who we worship and the power of the word that he has given to change our lives and to bring true rest and satisfaction to our souls. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.